I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Nate Langson, and this text message was sent on Sunday, the 1st of March, 2015. Now joining me this week to discuss the top UK technology news of the hour is nobody because I'm alone in the corner of my studio at home with nobody here to talk to. That's because they're all at Mobile World Congress in Barcelona. Admittedly, I have normally been there myself, but this year I had uh, some other things to do, like new job and a new podcast and uh, sleeping. So I'm not there this year. I'm not particularly missing out, I don't think, because I never really enjoyed Barcelona's mobile trade show uh, in, in, its, in its later era, if you like. Um, it's a bit of a mad rush to take photos of devices that all kind of look the same, and uh, I got a bit bored of that. So I'm not going to that this year, but I will be talking in bullet point form almost about some of my highlights of devices and technologies that have so far trickled out of the, I was going to say mobile world cervix, but that sounds incredibly disgusting. I apologize for the mental image. I'll just be talking about some of my highlights of things that have been released, such as a 200 gigabyte micro SD card. Yes, that's the thing the size of a tooth that can store as much data as you could fit on about eight Blu-ray discs. I'm going to be talking about that. We're also going to be talking about 5G. That's the, uh, you, you know what 4G is, that's the thing that costs a lot of money and doesn't serve much benefit to most people versus 3G. And that is already looking to be a little bit long in the tooth because 5G is being discussed, specifically one terabit per second 5G. I'm going to be joined by Alistair Stevenson from the website V3 because V3 had a great exclusive this week about this one terabit per second 5G network test that happened in the United Kingdom. And I really wanted to know what this means potentially for the future of British mobile networks and businesses. Also, in the second half of the show, I'm keeping Alistair around. I've glued his feet to the floor and he has no shoes on. He will literally have to rip the skin from his feet to escape my conversational clutches. And we are going to be talking about some of the non-device specific things and trends and uh, products and announcements that we expect to come out of Mobile World Congress. Things like security, uh, the government's backdoor access into your SIM cards, that kind of stuff. But anyway, first we're going to do some news. So rather than a rundown of all the week's news and discussion, because I have no one here to talk to, so I'm just going to shout into this silent little corner that I have in my room in West London. Um, I'm just going to talk about some of the things that have come out of Mobile World Congress so far that I think are worthy of comment. And the first is that Samsung has announced, of course, the Galaxy S6 phone, which has had a much more significant design overhaul than the S5 did over the S4. Now, an Apple fan may think it looks a bit like the glass front has been taken from the back of the iPhone 5 and been blended with the curved metal edges of the iPhone 6. But who am I to say that it is definitely the nicest looking Galaxy phone for sure. I don't think I've seen one that I liked as much as this, certainly not since the S3 came out. And inside, Samsung has tossed Qualcomm to the curb as far as processors are concerned, which is really bad news for Qualcomm, of course. Samsung's the second biggest, I think, customer of Qualcomm. And unlike Apple, which designs its own ARM-based chips for 
its products but gets other companies to manufacture them. Samsung can manufacture its own and that's what it's doing for the S6. It's got an octa-core processor and my scrutinizing of the benchmarks reveal that the phone has eight cores running at at 1.5 gigahertz each. That's eight CPU cores all at 1.5 gigahertz each. Most of them last year were four cores. We've now got eight and there's three gig of RAM and uh, in total it looks like the performance is actually going to be better than the Galaxy Note 4 which is pretty interesting. The other big change for the S6 is that it's got a sealed body uh, meaning no micro SD card support and no removable battery. Now that's really weird because the S the S5, or certainly most of the Galaxy line, one of the biggest selling points was the fact that versus the iPhone, you can change the batteries. So even if it does suck up all the juice in there, you can at least carry a second one or um, if you need to. It also means it's lost the waterproofing, um, which is bizarre, where the S5 could be dropped in toilets or baths or indeed any container rich with fluid. I'm not here to judge or suggest the S6 cannot. So if you do drown this one after getting used to being able to bathe with your S5, you'll just have to buy a new one from Samsung. Oh no, whatever will Samsung do having to sell you another phone to replace the broken one you put in some water? Elsewhere, there is a new HTC One M9, which has an octa-core processor as well, except this one comes from Qualcomm. But further benchmark scrutinization on my part suggests that it's less powerful than Samsung's octa-core competitor, even though both chins chips run at 1.5 gigahertz are you keeping up sorry about all the jargon there um, but there is very little physical difference with the new M9 versus the predecessor. Uh, the battery is actually a little bit bigger with the clock speed of the um, uh, of Qualcomm's maybe being a little bit lower possibly than Samsung's. It could be that we get better battery life um, and, uh, and, and that's only a good thing in the world of smartphones. So what else has excited me from Mobile World Congress so far? Got to go back to that 200 gigabyte micro SD card from SanDisk. That's a memory card the size of a tooth. This is my highlight from the show so far because yearly upgrade cycles of Android phones kind of don't hold my interests for more than about three paragraphs of brain time but a 200 gigabyte storage capacity on a micro SD chip that colors me very excited um, it's going to cost probably about 300 quid I've seen a 400 dollar price tag knocking around so I would imagine about 299 once this hits the UK market and uh, obviously you can't actually put this in your Galaxy S6 because it doesn't have that slot anymore so I think it makes a very interesting candidate for some of these high-resolution portable audio players that require enormous amounts of storage space for high-definition uh, studio albums. You can carry several of these if you're wealthy enough and value um, high-resolution audio so much. And maybe being able to car- carry a terabyte of high-res albums around on five of these 200-gig uh, little discs um, is, is pretty exciting to uh, high-end audio people. So that's uh, there, there's some of my highlights. I was going to mention as well the uh, Valve VR headset called the Vive, which uh, it turns out is being manufactured by HTC. This is kind of a competitor to the, competitor to the Oculus Rift or Samsung's Gear VR. But the reason I particularly like this one, apart from the fact that it's developed in partnership with Valve, um, who makes Steam and Half-Life and Portal and things, is the fact that this thing comes with a base station that can track your movement in a room up to 15 by 15 feet. This means... When you put this headset on and stand in the middle of your room to play a game, you can walk around your room and it will and your character potentially could be walking around the room on screen. Now it does probably require a higher insurance premium on your house given all the uh, animals and precious objects that you may run into when fleeing 
ever more realistically rendered zombie faces. But um, if you're wealthy enough or do not value anything in your home, then this is pretty exciting. And I'm definitely one of those people I dearly look forward to breaking a leg while chasing zombies. So we'll probably have more to talk about next week when Ian returns from Barcelona and we'll see what other technology journalists who've been out at MWC I can drag on, glue to the floor and interrogate for your interest and entertainment. So do come back. I wanted to uh, just end the news segment uh, by returning to the, uh, the topic of 5G. And this is because there was a story on V3 written by Dan Worth, uh, who's, who writes that 5G speeds of one terabit per second have been achieved during tests at the University of Surrey. Now, Professor Rahim Tafosili, who I'm not sure I have pronounced the name correctly, uh, is director of the 5G Innovation Center at the university and he told V3 that it was the first time in the world that such speeds had been achieved and it's far faster than other test tests known such as Samsung's 7.5 gigabit per second result. So um, he explained that the, the company or rather that the 5G Innovation Center had been working on new technologies to support 5G services, which have been instrumental in producing the one terabit per second result. So he actually said, and this is a quote, we've developed 10 more breakthrough technologies, and one of them means we can exceed one terabit per second wirelessly. This is the same capacity as fiber optics, but we're doing it wirelessly. Now, this is really interesting. And, and according to the report, the plan is to take the technology outside the lab and onto the campus at the university during next year or 2017 before demonstrating it to the public in early 2018, allegedly ahead of rivals from South Korea, Russia and Japan. Now, here's where things get interesting. 5G seems to be anything between about one gigabit per second and now one terabit per second. That is a huge margin. That is a thousand-fold difference between the two. Uh, depending on who you ask, at least, that's, what, that's where 5G seems to fall between. And that also depends on how the tech is being tested, either in a strictly controlled laboratory experiment, like the, the one terabit per second one here. So I met up with V3's Alistair Stevenson to explain really a bit more about speeds. what went on behind this yeah, trial. So at the moment, they've said these guys are in test conditions, man, one terabit per second. And what we've actually seen by other people, like Samsung, is 7.5 gigabits per second. And then Ofcom, who are sort of talking about 2020, are saying there'll be a maximum of 50 gigabits per second. So breaking the terabit set light line is kind of a big deal, fairly important. But... This is all in lab conditions over the spread of 100 meters apart. I mean, you can recreate a lot of very successful trials, but as we've seen so many times, once it hits cities, once you put buildings in the way, suddenly one terabit starts looking uh, a little terrible. Yeah, that's completely right. Um, and they, are actually, they have actually said this is all test conditions and they haven't taken it outside yet. Um, and another thing that actually is important to note is while they've got these speeds, they haven't solved the latency problem at the moment. And latency is actually going to be the bigger driver that's going to cause problems for future applications. Because um, obviously, you know, com uh, machines and parts waiting to speak to each other can cause stutters and chugs. So even if you've got these really fast speeds, it could still be not that great when it comes to actual performance or download speeds. Did they give you any indication as to what the the the, the best reason for this to exist is i mean we're not talking about initially consumers downloading high-res 4k video files i mean i presume we're talking about shifting huge volumes of data from at one space center to another 
I mean, yeah, completely. Um, as always with these new technologies, it'll be the enterprise and the government departments that'll get it first. I mean, you know, the NSA were among the first to get supercomputers. It's always that way. Um, so this will be much more big data analytics on the move and people accessing cloud systems and that sort of thing, as opposed to consumers, as you said, downloading massive 4K media files. Alistair Stevenson from V3 there. Now, we'll hear more from Alistair shortly. But first, we have a couple of emails that have come into podcast at natelangson.com, our shiny new email address. Andy writes, just listen to the podcast and the first section on toilet roll poetry was the most random segment I've ever listened to on a tech podcast. Loved it. P.S. I would leave an iTunes review, but don't use iTunes or any Apple products, and I suspect I'm not the only one. If leaving a review somewhere else would help, do mention it on the next podcast. Well, to be perfectly honest with you, at this point iTunes really is the place that would make the most difference to get those reviews. As much as people um, do love to not love Apple products and iTunes, uh, as far as podcasters are concerned, that's where about 90%, if not more, of our referrals and our downloads and our subscribers come from. It, it really is that much. So leaving a review, even if it's just a case of signing up a free account to leave the review, those sorts of things help. So you'll have to think long and hard about how much you want to help um, the show get noticed but um, if you if you don't want to leave one on iTunes then obviously anything on Twitter or just uh, mention it to a friend who you think will enjoy the show get them to download it maybe put it on their phone for them I'm assuming it is an Android so I recommend Pocket Casts um, that's what I use anyway uh, that would be really helpful but thank you Andy and I'm glad you enjoyed last week's show we also have another email from Tom now, Tom writes in with a, a point on Touch ID that we were talking about the other week which involves fingerprint sensors for... Um, unlocking mobile banking apps on uh, on mobile phones. Tom says, I was talking to someone at my local bank at the uh, excitement and easiness of touch IDs for bank of touch ID for banking. However, he came up with a very great point. Unlike a password or fingerprint, uh, it can't be changed. So once your fingerprint is hacked, then the ease of use drops significantly. I understand we have other digits, but it's the equivalent of texting with your other hand and wondering what you think. Now, I, I actually think this is a great point, Tom. Uh, and obviously, we are in a world where two-factor authentication is encouraged. So fingerprint plus something else, maybe a text message, maybe something that doesn't require only the fingerprint. But I think realistically, um, the goal here is to prevent people from being able to steal a phone and quickly get access to your money. And while, yes, you can hack a fingerprint or you can clone a fingerprint, the speed at which you're going to be able to do that, I think, is going to inhibit the need to even try and do that. As soon as they've cloned a finger, you're going to have disabled your phone, alerted your bank. You know, it's one of the first things we do when we lose a phone is we um, we change our passwords and things like that, um, let banks know. So I, I do think it's a good point, but I think that um, the, the need to worry about that is, is probably quite small um, just because of the amount of time it's going to take to clone a fingerprint. Um, anyone else with other views on that, of course, very welcome to email podcast at natelangson.com. Thanks to Tom and Andy for their comments for this week's show. Right, well, joining me now, who you've heard in the first half of the show today, is Alistair Stevenson from V3. Hello, Alistair. Uh, hello, Nate, and hello, everyone else. This is nice. We get to talk without a time limit of, can you explain 5G in 60 seconds, please? This is, this is good. So, we are talking about Mobile World Congress, a topic I'm sure no other technology podcasts 
are discussing this week. Well, you know, it does stay under the hood every year. It really does. Um, but we didn't want to talk about just the big phones because I'm kind of bored by them. They're all the same these days anyway. I'm not really interested. Until I get 8 gigs of RAM in a phone, I'm not really that interested. So we want to talk about um, what we think are going to be the most important things that we're going to get out of Mobile World Congress. Let's take it as given that there's going to be a Galaxy S6. There's going to be a new HTC. There's going to be smartwatches from HTC. And, and Sony's going to be releasing another phone. In fact, I think it's just announced at the E4 um, today, today as we record anyway. What would you say? What's your trend? What are you keeping your eye on, I think, I think for me, um, the big thing I'm going to be watching, obviously, is going to be the sort of what I always like to think of as the Illuminati guys at MWC, you know, the tech people who well, make it so people can make things like the Galaxy S6. I mean, we've already had, you know, ARM announce their new Cortex. Um, Intel are obviously going to react to that, so you're going to have the new processors, which will probably inform what's going on with Samsung and a few other people. So this is... This is, this is so ARM, for anyone who doesn't know, ARM uh, designs a lot of the chips that power things like the Qualcomm Snapdragons that go in most of the high-end phones. Intel currently is not even a player in that field. So you reckon, you reckon Intel, owner of basically the entire desktop market, at least in the Western economies, mm. is going to start doing more with mobile phones? Well, they've already been shifting to mobile devices for quite a long time, and we had Merrifield and Moorfield last year. The problem is they've not got much traction with it. I mean, mm. you see them appear in a few um, what I would describe as low-end Android tablets. Uh, you know, they've got Asus, Dell, HP, the kind of business guys using them. But, yeah, they haven't had any penetration like Qualcomm. Um, to be honest, I think, I mean, we talked about wearables. What's going to be interesting more from Intel is putting aside mobile phones. Their move towards Internet of Things, and that can involve smartwatches and things like that. But also, um, they've also got microsensors. I mean, we had Edison last year, now they brought out their new version, Curie. Yeah, the, the button-sized. Yes. Button, uh, the, 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 the processor designed for wearables so small it fits in a shirt button. Exactly. That is, I mean, that was pretty impressive. I have to say, I mean, Intel, you can, you can criticize Intel for being massive or for being, uh, you know, for getting their ass kicked for sort of... Uh, deals that they struck with PC makers that was around sort of mid mid 2000s um, but they are making some very very interesting advances in in really tiny computers i mean getting a processor or a system on a chip i suppose specifically which is not just a processor but it is it's the memory controllers and you know potentially graphics wi-fi all that kind of stuff inside something that can fit in a cloth for want of a better word it's it's insane yeah it's it's remarkable is Do you think it, we're going to see more of that mobile congress? I think they're finally going to start making good of some of it. Mm. Um, I mean, you know, Intel have made no secret of the fact that they want to own the Internet of Things market, both you know in the enterprise and in the consumer space, which is why they're putting so much research into this. Um, I think that's going to be, have a lot of you know interesting connotations when they come to because even if we don't get, I don't know, say, a final product, you can get proof of concepts and ideas about what's going to be going on with it. I mean, last year they had a uh, smart coffee cup, which I thought was brilliant. Yeah. Um, but I think we're going to get more interesting uses, of this, especially in areas which are going through a bit of a technology renaissance, like healthcare, mm. um, government. I mean, you know, the government at the moment is spending lots on this. So if you have trackers and things, which you can put security guards or even just enterprise executives. Let, let's actually talk about that more, because obviously as a, as a journalist, as a tech journalist, and, and V3 uh, as a big part of its focus is security and enterprise and you know, a, a big emphasis on uh, wearables is obviously personal data uh, collection, personal, 
a personal usage of personal data collection, you know, yeah. fitness trackers and things. But that does bring to the question, well, if everything's connected, how am I going to be monitored even more, potentially? That's the concern that Mr. and Mrs. Layman have out in the street today. I saw them outside in the rain. They look concerned. They said, I don't want my heartbeat going into my button and having that button going through the NSA and GCHQ. I just want my shirt to be able to tell my fridge it needs to order some chocolate because my belly is getting a little too small and I need to build it out again. That's all they want. Should they be concerned? Uh, I'm going to put my tinfoil hat on for a second and say, absolutely. Um, wow. IoT is a wild west completely. We're talking back in the days of computer where computing where some people saying they're designing things, you know, secure by design, but most people aren't. aren't. And there's not even a common standard about how these sensors are going to work or what they're going to do. And data privacy laws are still playing catch up, so there's not even a way to know if, if they do cl- capture all this data, it's illegal, which of course was we mentioned the NSA, but GCHQ used that defense constantly mm. when their practices, you know, Operation Dempura and things were going on. And I think at the moment, nobody really knows what's going on with security, and the first people who are going to be able to figure out how to make money of it aren't going to be people like Intel. They'll be criminals who are taking this data and selling it, because at the moment, it is worth a lot of money. Okay. So is this, tracking this back to Mobile World Congress, then, is this, this is something that you're particularly interested, then, in seeing what comes out of, out of this, because it's moved on from just being about mobile phones, it became tablets, it became bigger. Now it's about anything that is... It feels like anything that is a personal and portable computing device with an ability to communicate with another, another device seems to be fair game as far as Mobile World Congress is concerned. It's it's becoming the most important technology trade show of the year, I think. Almost at this point, more so than CES, for, certainly for for anything mobile. I, I definitely I definitely think so on that front. I mean, every year I go to MWC and I, I stopped. I used to speak to people like Samsung. We we started that early HTC. Whereas now uh, I'm going to be speaking to people from Cisco, Juniper Networks, uh, security experts like Miko Hippenen from um, F Secure, who of course was the first guy who said, "Oh, mobile malware will be a thing." Everybody laughed at him, and mm. then we now have what was it, 600,000 malware variants targeting Android alone. Mm. Do it. How many? How many are targeting iOS? Do you know? Uh, well, Apple will never tell you that. No. <laughs> they don't discuss security. No. Um, See, there's always been this debate in the PC versus Mac community that Macs are more secure than uh, Windows, which statistically may appear true. And I'm a Mac user, and I don't install any antivirus on my system at all. And I have been criticized by a guy actually who works for AVG who said, well, it's not just about you. What if you're passing on to somebody else? And I was like, well, okay, well, that is a fair point. Um, but, but, I, but I still don't because I feel personally, I do feel secure using a Mac with that antivirus. But some people do comment that it's not that the platform is more secure. It's just that fewer people are targeting them because it's not seen as a viable target to get a, a return on investment, if you like, because there aren't enough Mac users compared to PC users. But in the iOS world, that's a very different case kettle of fish. You know, there's over a billion iOS devices out in the world now. Apple, just in one quarter of, of last year alone, sold 70, almost 75 million iPhones. One product in, in three months, 75 million. That doesn't count iPads. That doesn't count iPod touches. So, uh, you know, and that's that was the same, pretty much the same number of Samsung shifted phones as well. So big target and yet we've not seen any serious repeated attacks on ios no no um ios uh well going against android it's very much the you know this open system versus closed system the closed system is always going to win out because apple pre-vets there's a lot of security checks whereas 
Google with Android takes an open approach where it sort of says, innovate, do what you want with iOS, which of course leaves it open to abuse, it's you know, two-edged sword. It means Android can get innovations to the market faster, technically will be adapted more easily. But when it comes to security now, um, I think there's going to be an interesting shift. Android will always be less secure just because of that fundamental point. But for example, today we've had Google Android for Work, which mm. adds you know, enterprise mobility management upgrades. It's had support from BlackBerry, which is, despite the fact that it has not made a good device for God knows how long, great when it comes to secure comms. And if you have a BlackBerry enterprise server, it's mm. still It is. Solid. And for a long time, it was the only one that governments would allow any government official to use. You know, Obama, famously BlackBerry user. Um, but eventually, iPhone and Samsung, I think it was with Knox, Samsung's Knox, Which, some, eventually got approved for use. And, and, and they can be, I think, now used by governments. But I wanted to just move the conversation forward a little bit. There was um, a, a conveniently timed announcement um, earlier this week about the SIM card manufacturer, Jamalto. And I wondered, I hadn't... I, Throwing this on you because I hadn't mentioned to you this to you ahead of recording, um, but it was an interesting one. This this was a story about the SIM company Jamalto. It was discovered that um, the uh, U.S. government, I think, wasn't it, had managed to effectively hack the SIM cards so that data could be monitored, and and it basically meant that anyone who had a Jamalto manufactured SIM card suddenly thinking, you know, has my call been monitored? Because regardless of device, it allowed access to the the sim card technology itself so do you think there's going to be any revelations about those sorts of areas of the industry i mean absolutely i mean we're talking about government grade attacks here um you know we mentioned the nsa having a supercomputer before they have a lot of resources and targeted attacks any security expert will tell you if somebody has enough will and a focus on you not financial not necessarily for financial gain so they're not going to go away if somebody's easier to attack They'll, break, they'll get their way in. I mean, human error can do it, or as you said, a SIM card crack. And we've also seen they are not above breaking technologies. I mean, they compromised RSA encryption protocols mm. and you know, pushed dodgy standards knowingly. Yeah. So you know, these technologies are going to be vulnerable and you will see them be device agnostic. If they want to get data from somebody who has an iPhone, they will get the iPhone if they want it. Wow. Even, even if it's clubbing over the head and then breaking his password with a brute force attack. Well, that's given us a lot to think about and uh, and definitely should give people an, uh, an idea of some other things to look out for um, from Mobile World Congress, apart from just the new product releases. Maybe dig a little bit deeper, I, I guess, from Alistair's reporting on V3 uh, and from elsewhere on the, on the web um, to have a look at some of these maybe smaller stories that are, that are coming out of Mobile World Congress about security, about SIM card technologies. Maybe they will be the next big thing you'll see in the mainstream headlines. Before we go, though, um, I just wanted to see if, if you thought there's going to be anything on the positive note, because we have basically told people the world is imploding and they should be terrified. Um, what, what's going to excite you most, do you think, this year that wasn't there last year? And I mean excite in the positive sense, not excite because there's a, a great headline, um, because you've seen a SIM card kill someone. Well, that would be a sight to see. But no, um, I think, um, as I said, for what's going to interest me are, are going to be some, maybe some future tech projections. So I think once we get a, a bit more traction about seeing what's going on with, as I said, things like Curry, you know, like these little microcomputers for wearables, I think that's going to be very exciting and potentially take off this year. Mm. Um, the other thing, I think my main takeaway, which I'm going to be really, really interested in, are some of the telecom providers' um, solutions. At the moment, there's a big thing going off, you know, back onto the tangent about security, about network monitoring. And everybody's sort of trying to push and find a way to make sure that they can tell their customers that your data is safe. 
I mean, you've got Deutsche Telekom, who promised last year to put all their technologies through local data centers. Apple has sort of moved to do that with their uh, data center news this week. I think the big thing that I'm going to be looking forward to is seeing some of these you know, promises bear fruit and seeing what the actual solutions they've come up to, it, to these massive problems are. Hmm. Great. Well, Alistair Stevenson there from V3. You can hear more from Alistair at v3.co.uk and follow him on Twitter at monkeyguru. I'm not here to judge. Neither should you at Monkey Guru. Thank you, Alistair Stevenson. And thank you for listening. Please, please keep listening. Tell a friend at this stage in a podcast's life. It means a hell of a lot to people like me who uh, make these on a Sunday night, um, largely for the fun of doing so. But, um, you know, it really helps the show get noticed. Leave a review or a rating on iTunes. Um, if you can be persuaded to use iTunes, if you're an Apple hater then um you know it really does help make a difference to get getting the show noticed um or send email to podcast at natelangson.com and hope that you will join us next week for our post mobile world congress wrap-up with whoever it is i drag into the studio and sellotape to the floor bye Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.